This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is the fourth episode in our five-part series on Macbeth, and as you might guess today, we are going to discuss, for the most part, Act 4. In Episode 1, we set up the historical context that situated Shakespeare's writing of the play, um, as well as Act 1 in Episode 2. Uh, Act 2, Lady Macbeth and the Murder of Duncan. In last episode, Episode 3, we learned what is famous about Moot Hill, its schoon, and we discussed Act 3, which includes the infamous banquet scene um, where presumably the ghost of Banquo visits Macbeth. And we left the episode discussing Macbeth's choice to move forward towards evil instead of changing courses towards uh, what would presumably be repentance and changing directions. And he's going in the opposite direction. And Macbeth famously says, For mine own good, all cause shall give way. I am in blood stepped in so far that I should wade no more. Returning were as tedious as going over strange things I have in head that will to hand, which must be acted ere they may be scanned. In other words, I can't repent. I've gone too far to go back. At this point, it's just as hard, if not more so than moving forward. He also emphasizes that from here out, he will focus first and foremost on his self alone. The words, for mine own good, all cause give way. I think I've heard that sentiment expressed other ways. You know, the phrase, I'm going to get mine and get it first, no matter who it hurts. (laughs) Uh, And today we'll see what or really who must give way for Macbeth to get what he wants. We'll see specifically what those strange things were that were in his head and how those impulses affect not just Macbeth, but the whole world around him. You know, I want to point out that artistically, uh, Shakespeare has painted brilliantly an entire world with only two colors, 
Red and black. I mean, um, I highlighted that contrast on our Macbeth icon on the website. It's the red and black color scheme. I mean, it's beautiful, but in a shocking, discomforting way. And I'd also like to point out that red and black are the team colors for the Central Missouri State University, (laughs) home of the fighting mules. Go mules. Well, uh, that's a great point to make. Uh, I don't know that the mules want to be compared to Macbeth, but okay. (laughs) You know, Shakespeare wrote an almost monochromatic play. I mean, it's devout of color, except for red. It opens in blackness in Act 1, Scene 1. And the first line of Act 1, Scene 2 is, What bloody man is that? I mean, the blackness of the play only lends itself to the red of the blood, which will not stop spilling well, it will stop, but just long enough for us to revisit the darkness and then occasionally some bearded sisters. <laughs> but Act 4, more perhaps than any other of the acts, reminds us, even if it's just intuitively, that the play, although it's painted in blacks and grays and reds, you know, it reflects human experience. And one that's the sharpness of it, it's outside the bounds of identifiable moral certainties. I mean, we'll oscillate between dualities, and and we wonder if we're bound by destiny, and and sometimes we only see life in blacks and grays and reds. So, Christy, why do you say that is more prominent in Act 4 than the other acts? I mean, uh, we have seen moral ambiguity since the beginning, starting with those weird bearded sisters. Oh, and those ladies are back. I mean, Act 4 reminds us that Shakespeare is not moralizing in his play. He's not trying to tell us how to live. He's demonstrating how complicated life choices really are. And and he even questions whether there's even such a thing as choice. Why do we do what we do? And why do we violate our own sense of right and wrong? I mean, where does the evil come from? This act makes no moral sense, even within the logic of the world of Macbeth. But before we enter into Macbeth's impulsive world, let's take a minute to look at a little bit of Macbeth witch trivia. Not just because the witches are the heart of Act 4, you know, but last episode um, we made a few comments that I think need a little more explanation. We, We commented that the witch scene of Act 3 was a later addition. It wasn't original to the play. Uh, And we didn't mention, but I think we should. Why do scholars think that Act 3, Scene 5 was added later, and why does this matter? I mean, it's not crucial to understanding the play, but it's a bit of fun. So let me tell you the story. In in 1610, a few years after Shakespeare wrote and initially performed Macbeth, there was a younger playwright named Thomas Middleton, and he wrote a play called The Witch. Now, The Witch wasn't very successful as a play, but the music of the play was successful to the point that two of the songs from his musical, specifically the songs Come Away, Hecate, and Black Spirits and White, are referenced by title in the 1623 folio version of Macbeth. And in in 1673, uh, the songs are included in full in Macbeth. (laughs) You know, I never think of musical theater being a medieval thing. (laughs) I know, right? But Macbeth was performed as a musical pretty early on. You know, during the English Civil War, that was in 1642, Parliament closed all the playhouses, and those playhouses didn't reopen until 1660, 
when they reopened, things were different. Women were allowed to perform in public. There was a lot better technology that would enhance the performances themselves. Plus, music and dance were in demand. So we had all this demand, but nobody had written any new material. So they got these old plays and they modified them. And ba-boom, Macbeth the Musical, a hit. <laughs> well, I guess we're going to have to thank Oliver Cromwell. He's probably the only one that could have turned oh. Macbeth into a musical hit. But, you know, I guess since there were no copyrights, there could be endless versions of Macbeth and countless other productions, you know, not just of this play. Uh, you know, so does this mean that the play was altered or that it even really mattered? No, ultimately, I think you're right to point that out. It, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, maybe people wanted more witches. Maybe they wanted songs. Maybe not. Maybe Shakespeare really did have originally four witch scenes, uh, which is unlikely. People would think, no, there was probably only three. Uh, but all we really know is what has survived. And these texts have survived in the form that they've survived in almost the whole time. So we have to believe that the essence of what Shakespeare was concerned about, that part's been preserved. And what concerns Shakespeare isn't really the music, obviously, and it's not even the political parts of Scottish history. The political parts, they're not even accurate. They've been oversimplified. Duncan wasn't a saint like he's portrayed in the play. His country was in a constant state of war, and he wasn't even considered a good king. Banquo was definitely not a martyr in real life like he's portrayed in the play. In real life, he was totally involved in the murder of Duncan. Uh, now, you could say that maybe Shakespeare's pandering because King James really did believe that Banquo was a relative, but that's not really the full reason. We have to think about the dramatic focus, and the dramatic focus of the play is not politics. It's the complication of human choice. In Act 2, Macbeth makes a choice that in his mind is morally wrong. It doesn't matter if you're the audience and you think Duncan is a good person or a bad person or if murder could be justified in this bloody world of Scotland. Uh, it doesn't matter because Macbeth does not struggle with that part of it. For him, he is unambiguously committing a morally wrong action. He has zero ambiguity about what he's doing. He's clear-headed. For Macbeth, killing Duncan is wrong, and he does it anyway. He makes the choice. The witches don't make the choice. Lady Macbeth doesn't make the choice. He alone does it. But then Shakespeare equivocates. Or does he? And that's what's interesting. The interesting part of the play is not Duncan's murder, but the psychological and moral decline that occurs after this first choice and creates this necessity for choice after choice after choice that follows. I want to point out something that I find uh, psychologically interesting. Macbeth commits this first murder himself, and after he's done it, he makes comments that suggest he needs to kind of suppress a part of himself to move forward. And he says things like, um, I'm afraid to think of what I have done or look on it again. I dare not. Um, but these other murders, Banquo's murder and Macduff's family's murder in Act 4, I mean, he commits by proxy. And in other words, he pays others to actually carry them out. And uh, Macbeth's moral universe at uh, first pass seems to be a simple one. Um, he's tempted by witches. 
Perhaps his wife then commits the ultimate Christian sin, you know, killing God's anointed, and then uh, descends downward from that point um, on into something he won't look at and into, and something that literally keeps him awake at night. But, you know, there are so many problems in simplifying this play. Um, Ambition, you know, although certainly an element of uh, Macbeth's path to destruction does not really seem to be the heart of it. Macbeth at no point even says that he wants to be king. You know, that bit comes from his wife and seems more what she wants for him than what he wants for himself. And what Shakespeare seems to be interested in is not what motivates us to do evil or even labeling a person as evil. I mean, I don't think he does that. What we see is one man's relationship with evil itself, perhaps the evil within or evil without and and its effect on him. Which brings us back to the weird sisters, because they are definitely evil, and they're not on Macbeth's side. You know, Macbeth leaves the fellowship of men with this intense desire to fellowship with the weird sisters. He has a purpose. He wants to subvert the natural order of things, the natural order being God's ordained ordering of men and beasts. Now, today we don't see kings as being ordained by God, but most of us really do see the universe as ordered and having a natural order. And there is a moral component to the universe. When Macbeth kills Duncan, he upsets that natural order. And nature throughout the play, nature responds. Nature acts strangely. And one question Shakespeare may be asking is if this is a thing that humans have power to do. Can we as humans, with any kind of success, challenge natural law and get away with it? I mean, God ordained Duncan. In this play, that's the natural order. And here's Macbeth trying to subvert nature. You know, whether way you can think about it, if you don't want to look at it from, you know, that Christian worldview is here is Macbeth trying to alter fate. If you remember from Beowulf, if you're familiar with that text, you know, fate is an Anglo-Saxon term. It's an idea for them. And their word for fate is weird. You know, it's not pagan. I mean, the play's not pagan. Uh, but the word weird is a pagan Anglo-Saxon. Saxon concept, and it means your fate, your destiny. Often it means doom. Weird is a pagan goddess. And in that worldview, weird actually intervenes actively, which brings up that in some ways this is Macbeth is a Christian play. I mean, it, it, it has to be. There's dozens of references to heaven, to hell, to the devil. So it's definitely a Christian play, but it has a very pagan element. I mean, even in religious terms, we see Shakespeare equivocating here. I mean, who is running the world? (laughs) Well, after that description, I'd also like to throw in, you're getting some enlightenment thinking uh, in this philosophy before the enlightenment even happened. So, uh, you know, again, Shakespeare ahead of his time, you know. But uh, uh, Machiavelli uses the word fortune to talk about that uncontrollable element of the future. And he was Catholic. Uh, Machiavelli argues that uh, in our lives we have agency, but our future isn't totally controlled by our agency. Uh, that agency is mingled with fortune and fate, if you will, and uh, that we can control fortune and fate in the beginning. But at some point, if we're not careful, fortune runs away from us and we lose control of it like a river. <laughs> well, you know, the old pagan 
um, Anglo-Saxon religion kind of says a similar thing. And, and maybe that's why Shakespeare doesn't call these ladies witches. He calls them weird sisters as a reference to that idea. I mean, their role really isn't one of acting on the universe necessarily. We don't see them, you know, cursing and killing like active agents. They, they're more like the wind. I mean, they're compared to the wind and their actions are linked to their words and, they blow in, and, and I don't know. Act four has got a lot more equivocating. <laughs> you know, and I don't understand this. Um, not really. I mean, does he think the weird sisters are making things happen, or does he just want to know the future because, uh, you know, I really don't, I don't see how this helps him. I mean, they have already told him that he won't have a dynasty. I, I know. I mean, Macbeth comes apparently for prophecies, but... He seems to want to alter fate, to alter weird, to bully his way into an altered reality and a reality where he gets what he wants. And the witches give him words and he takes their words for answers, but they don't change the future at his bequest. I mean, there are more famous words from this uh, play that come out of Act 4. And I want us to talk about these uh, in a minute, because when the witches talk or the weird sisters, remember, they alter their speech patterns. Uh, most of the play is done, especially the noble characters, is done in iambic pentameter. Ba-dump, 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 like the human heart. But when the witches speak, it's reversed. They speak in troic tetrameter. It's an unnatural uh, speech pattern. Bump, ba-dump, ba-dump, ba-dump. Read for us those lines and listen to those speech pattern here. And I love reading this line. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Yes, <laughs> double, double, toil and trouble. I mean, compare that as opposed to a phrase out of Act 1. I dare do all that may become a man. Now, a man speaks, ba-dump, ba-dump. But the weird sisters speak bump ba dump It's the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Which I never would have picked up on without your your insight there. You know, uh, the witches chant that phrase, double, double, toil and trouble, three times as they prepare this charm in a cauldron. But as they prepare it, uh, they don't just chant. They're going to throw in disturbing things into this pot. Um, first, it's just animal parts, you know, poisoned internal organs and a toad and a snake. And, you know, listen to this recipe. An eye of a lizard, a frog's toe, wool from a bat, a dog's tongue, a snake's tongue, a worm's sting, a lizard's leg, a baby owl's wing. I mean... I don't know where you find that, but a scale from a dragon's skin, a wolf's tooth, and a shark's stomach. <laughs> that's what, so what, funny. What kind of stew is that? <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> you know, and that's not the entirety of the recipe. Uh, you know, after the animal bits, then they move on to human parts. And, you know, this is where it gets disturbing. These are deliberately racist and sexist in nature. I mean, the liver from a Jewish man, the nose of a Turkish man, the lips of a Tartar, and a Tartar would be a person from Mongolia. And uh, perhaps the most disturbing of all, the finger of a birth-strangled baby that had been ditch-delivered by a prostitute, and all of this chilled by baboon's blood. I mean... Uh, <laughs> 
I mean, of course, what is interesting about this list of human parts is that in the Christian theology of the day, all of those people are damned to hell. The Jew, the Muslim, the Mongolian, and the unbaptized baby of a prostitute. I mean, to me, uh, it kind of confirms that these weird sisters are witches, and the witches are evil, which, of course, is what King James vehemently believed. But it's really not totally clear uh, what they are actually doing this for, but what a concoction. Well, and as evil as these ladies are, I mean, here they are literally throwing human body parts into a bowl. When Macbeth approaches, this is such irony. Look at what they cry out. By the pricking of the tongue, something wicked this way comes. And the something they're talking about is Macbeth. I mean, even to witches, he is not a person anymore. He's a thing. He has totally dehumanized himself. And these ladies with these body parts are calling him wicked. Even by their definition, he's wicked. Macbeth, no matter what he's been up to at this point in his life, at this point, he has turned himself into something evil. For sure, when witches call you wicked, <laughs> you have gone, gone too far. to the other side. You know, and we see this correlation between becoming evil and becoming evil means becoming something that is defined as not human anymore. And um, Stephen Greenblatt uh, suggests in his book Tyrant. The more you try to be superhuman, actually, the more subhuman that you become. Macbeth leaving the fellowship of men for the fellowship of witches. I mean, if it's anything, it's an exodus from the milk of human kindness, if we're going to use Lady Macbeth's words. And it's going into something that is not human, uh, whatever these sisters are. And Lady Macbeth wondered if he had the capacity to leave his humanity behind. And it turns out that he actually does. Well, and notice how mean he's to the witches. I mean, he calls them secret black midnight hags. I mean, he tries to bully them into giving him what he wants. I conjure you, answer me, call them, as in call their masters, tell me. I mean, these are all in the imperative tent, or, yeah, mode. Uh well, uh, that's pretty bold to try to bully witches. <laughs> I mean, you know, and but they give in. They appease him, and they give him sure. visions. Well, yeah, and the first vision is of an armed head. And obviously, this is supposed to signify war. The head says, beware Macduff. And Macbeth is already plotting against that guy. And then there's the second vision. And the second vision is a bloody child. And the bloody child says, be bloody, bold, and resolute. Laugh to scorn the power of man, for none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. You know, this seems encouraging. I mean, everyone is born of a woman, so... Macbeth interprets this phrase, uh, none of woman born shall harm Macbeth, to mean that no one who's been born of a human can harm him. You know, well, my first thought is those two statements don't make any sense. I mean, uh, why would the first prophecy say to beware of someone, then the very next prophecy seem to suggest that you're invincible and you can't be harmed? I mean, if you can't be harmed, why do you have to beware of anyone? Well, exactly. And it seems that the sisters, you know, they can't lie, but they can equivocate. They can mislead, and this is obviously what they're doing. I mean, remember, Banquo told Macbeth this back in Act 1. Banquo says that the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles to betray in deepest consequence. Banquo knew what he was talking about. The weird sisters don't care about Macbeth. 
I mean, they don't care about anyone. They don't care about Duncan or Malcolm or McDuff or Lady McDuff. The Weird Sisters are outside this natural order of our world. And the third vision is of a crowned child with a tree in his hand. And he says, Macbeth shall never vanquish be until great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill shall come against him. I'd like to point out that Dunsinane Hill is a, a rocky cliff that's a thousand feet high. It's a part of a series of hills that run in east central Scotland. So, you know, it's not something one can just move. Um, of course, trees can't move anyway. So this vision seems to be of something that is really particularly unlikely to be going anywhere. True, but again, Macbeth hears what he wants to hear, and he doesn't consider that maybe this is a riddle. He responds, that will never be. I mean, who can impress the forest, be the tree and fix his earthbound root? Well, you know, the final vision, of course, is a historical favorite. Um, it's offered to Macbeth because Macbeth asks a, a specific question about Banquo's children, and he wants to know if Banquo's children will ever be kings of Scotland. Well, and he shouldn't have to ask that. They told him the answer to this back in Act 1. That's the first thing they told him. He would be king, but Banquo's descendants would be. I want to point out, too, uh, Shakespeare is no dummy. <laughs> There's an understatement. And this little addition uh, may be a bit of fun for King James. Um, Shakespeare brings in a ghost of a line of kings marching across the stage with Banquo's bloody ghost marching with them. And this is a, uh, a parade. It's the Stuart dynasty. Um, Robert II, and then the third, and then, of course, James I, and second, and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth. And Shakespeare did leave out Mary, Queen of Scots. <laughs> but um, anyway, she may have still been a little bit of a tricky subject in England at the time, considering her relationship to Elizabeth and the fact that they, you know, had her killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, to add to your point here, that last ghost... Uh it's in the stage directions. He's supposed to have glass in his hand, which seems weird. But historians think that the glass may be a mirror. And at that point, the actor would have had put the face, like held it up so that James I's face would be reflected in the mirror, kind of saying, you're in the line, keep going. And this goes on a bit, uh, on and on and on. It's a bit of flattery. It's a stage effect. I mean, it can't hurt your reputation if you're one of the king's men. <laughs> he really did kind of kiss up to King James, didn't he? You know, um, what's interesting about that is that Shakespeare was technically a prophet himself. I mean, um, there have been 18 British monarchs since James I, and uh, all of them are descendants of James I. And King Charles is the 13th descendant of James I. And James I was the first king of Great Britain, but, you know, he certainly has not been the last. No, and, and the witches disappear, and this prophecy, of course, is not well received. I mean, Macbeth's response is not to make peace with his fate or his fortune. I mean, he's not going to embrace Banquo's kids or do the right thing. He's already committed. He's not going back. He's going ahead, and he's going ahead in blood. Once he hears that Macduff has gone to England, he decides to murder Macduff's family, and it makes no sense. He says that from that moment onward, he will do the first thing that crosses his mind. And the first thing is to spill more blood. He wants to raid Macduff's castle, seize the town of Fife, kill his wife and child and anyone else that's in Macduff's line. <laughs> 
Wow, you know, the head count is adding up. And uh, what the uh, the Macbeth thought would be just a simple thing of killing one man has now turned into a very large number. I mean, there's Duncan and Banquo, Macduff's son, who was killed on stage, and his wife who was killed off stage. Uh, there looks to be no end in sight to the killing. No, there is no end in sight. I mean, when Macbeth and Lady Macbeth hatched their plot, they thought killing Duncan would be, and they used the phrase, Shakespeare made it up. The be-all and the end-all. Let's reread those lines from Act 1, because now, then you're in Act 4, they sound really different. If it were done, when tis done, then twere well, it were done quickly. The assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with us Sir Cree's success. But that this blow might be the be-all and the end-all. Here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. You know, and this is how, on a personal uh, level, we can all relate to this play. I mean, have you ever wanted to know what would happen if you just succumbed to evil, to temptation? If you, you know, to use the words of the witches, do whatever causes us to evil, whatever causes us to violate our conscience. I mean, for any reason. I mean, everyone's wondered that at, a, at one time or another. If I could just solve my long-term problem with this small act of immorality, it would be the end-all, be-all, end-all. And we could jump the life to come. I could make the life that I want come. You know, find that moral sh- shortcut. It would be worth it. It would just be a small violation. And, and this is how I think Shakespeare, you know, taps into that which is eternal, because this isn't political. I mean, this is very personal. Shakespeare is letting us live out this very human fantasy of engaging what we believe to be evil, but we get to do it vicariously through Macbeth. That's safer. I mean, that's the idea. This is how I envision things to be. This is what he's saying. This is how these kinds of things can play out. So um, we're asking what happens if you just run straight towards evil full on um, for whatever reason, uh, but impulsively. I mean, it seems there is this element of impulsivity from start to finish. I mean, doing whatever first comes into your head and uh, no matter how destructive or no matter how pointless and uh, playing around with that, you know, what's the result of that? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I will say, playing around with that, what's the result of that? If you're a woman, it isn't good. There are only two women in this play, Lady Macbeth and Lady Macduff. And as you would expect, Shakespeare creating, he's made them foils. I mean, a foils means they're opposite. Lady Macbeth, you know, she's arguably sketchy. But Lady Macduff, you can't argue that she's sketchy. She's very dutiful. Lady Macbeth has no children Lady Macduff has a wonderful and dutiful son. Lady Macbeth has a close relationship to her husband. Lady Macbeth does not. She's a, All we know is that she's mad at, at hers. He's left her. So we have some interesting contrasts. But of course, the most ironic contrast is that Lady Macbeth worries that her husband has too much human kindness. Lady Macbeth complains that her husband doesn't have enough. But either way, my point is, for the women, it doesn't matter. They both went down. I mean, these women die pretty pointless deaths, and neither is protected by their mate. (laughs) Well, sorry, Christy. You know, I hate to admit it, but uh, life in that time period was not very kind to women. (laughs) 
No, I would say it certainly wasn't. But it is interesting to think uh, in Act 4 in these gendered terms, and not just because of the ambiguity of the gender of the witches or even the murder of Lady Macduff and her helplessness, but for another reason, because the last scene of Act 4 is entirely in it's written in gendered language. It's the longest scene of the play, which is unusual because this play is so full of action. And this scene is long, but nothing really happens. That makes it kind of boring. And it makes you wonder, well, what's the point of all this? But we get back to this discussion in this scene of manhood, which you can say uh, is what Lady Macbeth used to kill, to goad her husband into killing Duncan. And if you remember, she said back then, well, if you're a man, you'll do this. Well, uh, you know, to use a literary term, uh, Christy Duncan is the foil to the Macbeth. Uh, he's everything Macbeth is not. He's the real and rightful king of Scotland, as opposed to Macbeth, who is this challenger and pretender to the throne. Uh, but he's also a worthy and integral um, human, which Macbeth is not. Shakespeare seems to care a, a lot about uh, highlighting the three traits of a bad person as uh, he depicts them for his readers. And this picture of what constitutes a real manhood, and I know that's a gendered word, but here it seems to mean manhood in a gendered sense as well as in the human sense. I mean, the whole conversation is about leadership versus inhumanity as it is expressed in a king. In this scene, you know, it isn't all that interesting for a lot of play watchers, to be honest. But because it's so long, uh, it is worth thinking about before we get into Act 5, which is more manic death. Oh, good. <laughs> I know. So let's get into this discussion of manhood, because that's a good place for us to end our discussion today. But before we do, I also want to talk about numbers. Uh, you mentioned the number three. You can't read this play without noticing this emphasis on numbers. Shakespeare's unusually specific about creating motifs with these numbers. Now, as you might expect, as an English teacher, I'm not a numbers person, but neither was Shakespeare. Shakespeare, by the way, contrary to popular belief, had a fantastic education there in Stratford, and maybe we should revisit that next episode. But math was not a part of their curriculum beyond just arithmetic at at that level. But in Macbeth, you know, Shakespeare clearly and deliberately plays around with numbers, the number three, but also the number two. If we think of the number three, think about it. There's the three weird sisters. There's three prophecies. There's three kings. There's three murders. There's three murders performed on stage. The witches use the word thrice, like in their chant from Act One. Um, there are lots of words that are repeated three times, like when the apparitions call out to Macbeth, 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 they use his name three times in a row. You know, there's three traits of a villain. I mean, that number three is archetypal. That means when I say something's archetypal, it's used all over literature in kind of the same way, no matter where it's being used around the world. The number three is this number of perfection. It's the number of the Godhead in Christianity. It's the number of divinity in other traditions. If you think about Egyptian mythology or, or the Hindu tradition, I mean, three is, we call it the magic number. It's the number of fate. It's also the number of time, past, present, and future. That's how Shakespeare is using it in this play. And he contrasts it with the number two. 
The number two is also archetypal. It's the number of dualities. It's the number of choice. And Shakespeare uses this number just as much as he uses the number three. When the sergeant reports the opening battle, he reports the cannons with double crap. So they doubly redoubled strokes upon the foe. Lady Macbeth prepares for Duncan. And let me quote, and every point twice done and then double done. Macbeth talks about Duncan as being in his house in a double trust. When Macbeth arranges the seats at the table, he's careful that both sides are even. And of course, that most famous line of all, double, double toil and trouble. I was just thinking about the numbers um, themselves. You know, the word equivocate comes to mind again. Um, The numbers two and three don't go together, Uh, you know, not mathematically, not symbolically. And the number two uh, symbolizes choice. I mean, you choose either this one or that one. The number three implies causation, you know, like one plus two equals three. And there is kind of a cause and effect feel associated with the number three. And, you know, I'm talking symbolically and obviously not mathematically because I'm in no way qualified to discuss this (laughs) mathematically. Well, I think it's, it's something like that exactly. I mean, three means you've already made your choices and now fate is just working itself out. And there is a point in time where Macbeth is making choices, but then at some point... He relinquishes his ability to choose, and then fate takes over, perhaps, or he relinquishes his humanity and a choice. I mean, in the Christian worldview, which would be Shakespeare's, you know, it is our ability to make choices that is God's gift to man. It's what separates humans from other forms of creation. You know, good versus evil, that's the ultimate choice. That's what we choose. You know, what's so interesting about Macbeth, especially early on in the play, is that Shakespeare makes him fully accountable for these choices. And uh, although the choices he makes are wrong and they lead to evil, um, we as audience members don't really view Macbeth himself as evil. I mean, the witches tempt him. Lady Macbeth puts a lot of emotional pressure on him to kill Duncan. But it's most certainly Macbeth who makes the decision to do so. And he makes every decision that follows after that. Right. And, and the question becomes, if we choose evil so completely, do we at some point surrender that which makes us human, our ability to choose? Do we lose our humanity? And if we do, at that point, who's making the decisions? If we listen to how Macbeth talks in Act 4, he literally says whatever comes into his head is what he does. But what's putting things into his head? I mean, this idea of murdering Macduff's family for no reason, it came into his head. He's being ruled by impulse, but where do those come from? Uh, You know, well, to get technical, it comes from our prefrontal cortex. I mean, uh, it's part of the frontal lobe of our brain, if you're actually asking. I am. (laughs) Okay. Well, impulse control really uh, distinguishes us from animals, but if you think about what that means to be driving those impulses of Macbeth, I would argue that it's fear. Uh, Fear, to me, is the dominant emotion in the play, and we as the audience are kind of brought in to be afraid with the spookiness of the ghosts, but the Macbeths are afraid from the beginning. They're afraid of getting caught. Uh, they're afraid of not being able to control events, but uh, Macbeth's fear grows actually at a paranoia level, and he can't trust anyone, and uh, he can't trust his closest friends, so he kills them. I mean, he's afraid of the ghost. He's afraid of Macduff, and of course, when we get to Act 5, we will see Macbeth admitting to himself 
as he's disintegrating, that he fears his own uh, desensitization to the human experience. I mean, you know, in simpler words, he becomes afraid that he can't even feel fear anymore. And I guess, you know, what do we do with our impulses? I mean, is that really at the heart of this conversation between Malcolm and McDuff? It does seem to be about that. I mean, it's set up as a conversation. Uh, remember, Malcolm is Duncan's son. He's gone to England, and McDuff has gone to, to get help. And Malcolm doesn't trust McDuff, who seems to be a little bit naive in leaving his family. He doesn't even know that Macbeth has slaughtered them. Uh, but Malcolm tells McDuff that if he were the king of Scotland, he would be impulsively more terrible than Macbeth. Let's read those lines. Black Macbeth will seem as pure as snow, and the poor state esteem him as lamb, being compared with my confineless harms. I mean, Malcolm gets a little ridiculous. He claims that his lust is insatiable, his greed is insatiable, his violence is unending. And he says this, Had I power, I should pour the sweet milk of Concord into hell, uproad the universal peace, confound all unity on earth. (laughs) Wow. Uh, What I find interesting about that, uh, you know, not even Macbeth is as bad as all that, but uh, Macbeth is not a lustful person. I mean, he's faithful to his wife. He's also not really a greedy person. You know, at least he's not portrayed as greedy. And that doesn't ever seem to be what's motivating him at all. And even his violence isn't motivated by anything but fear. And so we see the differences between man and beast. One, it's the control of oneself, control of one's emotions, the control of one's behaviors. It's also one's ability to consider or empathize with others. Macbeth is in it for himself and himself alone, where Malcolm, not only can he choose against his own impulses, he can also choose against his own self-interest. Let's hear him describe himself as he tells Macduff that help is on the way. The taints and blames I laid upon myself for strangers to my nature. I am yet unknown to woman, never was forsworn, scarcely have coveted what was mine own, and at no time broke my faith. Would not portray the devil to his fellow and delight no less in truth than life. My first false speaking was this upon myself, what I am truly is think in my poor countries to command. Whither indeed before they here approach, old sired, with ten thousand warlike men already at a point was setting forth, now we'll together end the change of goodness be like our warranted quarrel. The final conversation in Act 4 brings a contrast, another contrast, not between Malcolm and Macbeth, but between Macduff and Macbeth. Ross, who's a thane, comes in and tells Macduff that Macbeth has slaughtered his entire family. He says this, Your castle is surprised, your wife and babes savagely slaughtered. To relate the matter on the query of these murdered deer to add the death of you. In other words, to talk about how they were killed would likely kill you. You know, we see that pun for the word deer. Deer as in they were slaughtered like an animal. Deer is as something that you care about a lot. Macduff, even though he's encouraged by Malcolm to impulsively go out and get his revenge, doesn't do that. In fact, he openly admits that it's not possible to get revenge on Macbeth. He says he has no children. In other words, what can I do to him that would be equal to what he did to me? 
Malcolm tells him anyway to dispute it like a man, egging him to act impulsively, challenging Macduff's manhood. But Macduff responds in a way that redefines what a man is. I like these lines. I shall do so, but I must also feel it as a man. I cannot but remember such things were that was most precious to me. Did heaven look on and would not take their part? Sinful Macduff, they were all struck for thee. Not that I am not for their own demerits, but for mine. Fell slaughter on their souls. Heaven rest them now. And maybe that's the ultimate statement of what it means to be a man, to have choices, and to own the consequences of them. Macduff, like Macbeth, made a choice. He left his family, and he takes responsibility for his part in their deaths. Now, was he responsible? No, he didn't kill them. Macbeth, and Macbeth alone is responsible. But could he have made a different choice and maybe saved their lives? You know, in Macduff's mind, that answer was yes. The night is long that never finds the day, and this is the very last line of Act 4, and it is the first glimmer of light. That's right. The day, the play that has been so dark from the beginning, evil just coming out of it, and now light and everything it represents, knowledge, truth, hope, it's on the way. Act 4, Scene 3, and the introduction of Malcolm, who will get the last line of the play, by the way, does introduce optimism. And the story will have a tidy ending. And, but the optimism is not what the tragedy of Macbeth is about. The tragedy of Macbeth is this expression of what evil is and what evil does. It lets us see it and we empathize with it. We feel Macbeth's descent as if we were the ones making the choices and that seem to be enticing, but they're deceptions. Evil, if it is anything, is deception. It's a web. And once you get in the web, it's almost impossible to get out. And in the next episode, we will see that Macbeth realizes that he is aware and his awareness leads him to perhaps his most famous line of three of the entire play. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Evil promises exhilaration, but what it delivers is tedium and boredom, isolation and meaninglessness. And summed up in my favorite phrase, sound and fury signifying nothing. I mean, it's a dark message. But then again, dark is alluring. We're naturally fascinated with darkness. But in this play, it is not our friend. And we will see that in the final episode next time. Well, thanks for listening uh, again. And don't forget, you can always find us at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Um, on our website, we have listening guides for most of our issues as well as teaching resources. Also, whether you are a teacher, a student, or a fellow lover of literature, uh, please subscribe to our podcast uh, via YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a rating. Uh, and if you like what you hear, possibly a review. It is when you share about the podcast to your friends on social media, via text or in class, that we grow. Thank you for supporting us in our mission to make reading great literature accessible and enjoyable to as many people as possible. Peace out.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.